You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, March 22nd, 2006, show number 10. Today's topics are scales of superiority and panic. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org. You can Skype us at IntIce, or you can IM us at int underscore ice on Yahoo or Intellectual Ice, all one word, on AIM. Here's your host, Jim Vance. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. Still, for some unknown purpose, I continue to be your host. One of these days, these people will wise up. In the meantime, I have with us Robert Raplin. Hello again. How you doing, Rob? Not too bad. Yourself? Uh, getting by, as usual. Glad to be back here with you guys again. And today, let's see, our topic is going to be scales of superiority. Oh, yeah. Fascinating topic. You've talked to me about this offline multiple times. It's, uh, I know, a deep-seated interest for you. It's really one of the most amazingly overlooked parts of social interaction that I've run into, ever. Okay, well, let's start there with that. What are scales of superiority? Scales of superiority are the things that people use in order to measure basically how they're doing in life. Occasionally, they're measuring their performance against their own previous performance, but more often than that, they're actually measuring it against others. Keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. Well, keeping up with the Joneses is one example of it, okay. and that's actually a scale called purchasing power. Okay. Is my purchasing power more or less than my neighbor's? Okay, so these are competitive scales then? Competition is, in fact, the basis of the scales. In order to be a scale in the first place, it's something that you have to be better than the other person at. Okay, so can you give some basic examples of what these scales might be? Well, the most obvious ones are earning power, as I right, mentioned before. Right. Popularity is another good one. Women more often tend to subscribe to the more beautiful scale. A whole bunch of people subscribe to the scale of a bigger fan, whether it's a bigger sports fan or a bigger fan of your religion or your country or whatever. Okay. More moral is another really common scale. A more capable engineer is another good one. But there are also scales that are less meaningful. A good example of that is George Carlin's infamous driving joke, where everybody on the road is either an idiot or a maniac. Okay. <laughs> and how this works is while we're driving, we're bored, and so we compare ourselves to others on the road. And you are either a faster driver than everyone on the road or a safer driver. One or the other. Those are opposing scales, and each of us feels that our balance of that scale is the perfect balance. And so everyone else out there falls less than you on one of those two scales. Okay, so do you think that these scales are central to a person's identity? I mean, some of this stuff sounds kind of trivial, like you were saying, some of them are lesser scales, but some of them sound downright trivial. Well, some of them are trivial, but it would be a bad idea to tell a person who collects stamps that stamp collecting is a trivial scale of superiority. But yes, they are absolutely central to our sense of identity. And in fact, when a person is attempting to find themselves, what that really means is they're attempting to figure out which scales of superiority are ones that they actually care about. What are ones that they feel that they can do well at and is worth their effort to try and do well at. So this is just a method for us to figure out who we can look down on and who we can feel superior to. Oh, no, no, no. Some people actually do use it for that. But generally speaking, what it is, is it is a way of telling how well we are doing in a specific pursuit. Some people just compare themselves to how they were previously. Some people compare themselves to others. 
some of those who compare themselves to others use that as a way of looking down upon others. So you can use it for lording over others, but that's not its primary purpose. Okay, so then what is the primary purpose? Well, the primary purpose is improvement. We tend to use scales of superiority to identify who deserves the rewards in our society. People who are better at a specific job get the better jobs. Guys who are better money makers get higher quality wives, and women who are prettier get higher quality husbands. The sports stars who get the most money are the ones who perform best at whatever their sport is. This is something that is so ingrained that it occurs all the way down the chain into the animal kingdom and even among insects where they compete on whatever scales are important to their survival to determine who, for instance, the alpha male is, who gets the breeding opportunities. Okay, so now that all sounds pretty obvious. So then in knowing this, how is that useful for us? Well, it's extremely important for a person to know what their own scales are. If you know what your own scales are, then you can better identify what activities are, in fact, to your benefit and which ones you probably should not bother spending your time doing. It's also extremely useful to know other people's scales because, for one thing, it'll tell you how they'll react to specific things. For another, it'll tell you what kind of compatibility you'll have. This is particularly important with dating because... Anybody who's dated enough knows that if you're someone who's very enthusiastic about religion, politics, or sports, for instance, that you probably shouldn't be dating someone who feels that excessive sports fandom is a personality flaw. Logical. Right. This is pretty much for anything you consider to be extremely important. If you happen to be a high-earning CEO, then you're probably not going to want to date someone who feels that money is a hindrance. Okay. Okay. So, for dating purposes, you have to match your scale to theirs, and finding out what their scales are is a quick way to determine compatibility. And this also works with jobs. When I'm interviewing people for programming jobs, one of the things I tend to ask them is whether or not they program at home. Because people for whom superior programming skill is a scale, that's something that's part of their being. As opposed to people who it isn't their scale, that's just something that they're doing. It's something that they can take or leave. A person for whom a pursuit is core to their essence is going to be better at it than someone who's just earning a paycheck doing it. Couldn't this scale be twisted in a very negative way for somebody who has a poor self-image? I mean, couldn't this, if they realize that they're comparing themselves to others, or even if they subconsciously are comparing themselves to others and they have a negative self-image, couldn't they be hurting themselves even worse? Well, the problem with that question is that we don't really have a choice as to whether or not we're going to follow scales of superiority. It's kind of written into our genetics that we're going to do this. But what a person who has such a bad image of themselves can do is they can A, figure out which scales are important to them and how they can improve on those scales. B, they can decide to subscribe to different scales. This is often the case with people who come from very religious families, but intellectually don't agree with the religion. They can often be forced into believing that they are bad people because they don't subscribe to the scale that the rest of their family subscribes to. If you can come to the conclusion that that scale is inappropriate to you or unnecessary, then you can get over that particular chunk of your bad self-image. So they have to reevaluate their world vision, so to speak. Yes, exactly. So then how do we use the knowledge of the scales to our advantage, to our benefit? The key to that is understanding that all scales were not created equal. Some scales are perfectly valid scales. For instance, being a faster runner, being a stronger weightlifter, being a more proficient mathematician. All of these are scales that resolve to perfectly valid advantages in the real world. There are other scales that are completely invalid. For instance, taller. I mean, yeah, you can get things off of higher shelves, but that's what stools are for. 
Or going back to our driving idea, the person who is in front feels superior to those that he's in front of. You may notice that if you try and pass someone who's moving slowly, they speed up. That's because they want to be in front because they feel that surge of superiority from it. Not that I've ever subscribed to doing that myself. Yeah. And so what we have to do is identify what our scales of superiority is and determine the validity of each individual one. Now, one of the interesting things about it is some of the scales are actually valid, but only because it's a form of bootstrap levitation. Fandom is an excellent example of this. Okay. Let's say I'm a fan of my bedroom lamp. No one's gonna care. Okay? <laughs> I was about to say something myself because it's like, okay, I've never seen your bedroom lamp. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. But let's say I'm a fan of the Taj Mahal. Okay. I think the Taj Mahal is great. Okay? That's a little bit more valid because it's something that I can tell other people about and they would think cool and their lives would be improved. Let's say I'm a fan of a major religion. Now, I spread word of this major religion. It significantly improves people's lives. This means my fandom, all by itself, is something of value not because it provides value to me, but other people find value in it, and then in return, they consider me valuable because I'm a fan of it. Okay. It's bootstrap levitation, but it works for this. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. Other scales, for instance, are extremely gratuitous. Being a philatelist, having more stamps than anybody else on the planet. Okay, you're superior... But only the other people who collect stamps are going to care. It's in no way going to transform into a benefit in the real world unless you happen to, for instance, find your wife at a stamp collecting convention. It's such a niche that it makes it impossible to really compare. Or extremely difficult. Okay. Some scales are extremely complicated. I think that I mentioned in my interlude last episode that when scales get extremely complicated, we lose track of what the original scale was in the first place, and we just shoot for winning. What would be an example of that? Well, politics is the typical one, and football. Football is more comprehensible as being extremely complex because you've got all those rules and you have the speed and dexterity and strength and weight and coherent planning and training and attitude that all goes into it. And it's so many different things that people forget that it's actually a contest of those things. And they'll start cheating, okay. adding other aspects that aren't being measured that, in fact, just dilute our ability to measure all of the rest of the things. Okay, fascinating. But if you can identify what your scales are and you can evaluate how useful the scales are to you in other aspects of your life, then it can help you prioritize your life more effectively. So it can be used to reassess ourselves and better ourselves in the long run. Absolutely fascinating. This is why I've probably, since I've met you, have come to live by your catchphrase of always make new mistakes. I mean, I think I was living by it before that, but now I have a phrase to attach to it. (laughs) So with our different levels of scales, you have completely valid scales, you have questionable scales, you have the meaningless scales, and you have invalid scales. Right. Now, do we have scales that are inherently dangerous? Oh, absolutely. A really good example of that is efficiency. A lot of people tell you that the most efficient way to do something is to not do it at all. And some people will take that to an extreme. There are unfortunately a large number of people in this world who pursue the scale of efficiency to a damaging level. For instance, a person who tries to get the most amount of money for the least amount of work. We've all run into this type of person in our various jobs. They perpetually make excuses for doing very little at all. Or they pretend to be extremely busy and make up all sorts of things that they have to get done that don't actually take any effort. 
Right. Now, we actually have a word for this in our society. It's called laziness. But what that is, is it's just pursuing efficiency beyond the point at which it's valuable. Now, pretty much every scale that exists can be pursued to the point that it becomes damaging. Again, moderation is the key to everything in the whole world. If you pursue any of these scales to an extreme, then if you're lucky, then all that's going to happen is you're going to run into a case of diminishing returns, where you're continuing to pursue the scale, but you're not getting a whole lot out of it. If you're unlucky, then you're actually going to be harming yourself. One of my favorite examples of this is libertarianism in general. Now, Mark Twain said that a libertarian is essentially an anarchist who bathes. <laughs> and the truth isn't really that bad. Generally speaking, a libertarian is a person who subscribes to the idea of little government. And libertarians will compete with each other to be the person who believes in the least amount of government. Which I've seen firsthand. Absolutely. And this pushes a libertarian into becoming an anarchist. They'll still tell themselves that they're a libertarian because they do believe in some laws, but there are so many different realms of law that somewhere in that area, they've pushed well beyond society's ability to handle a lawless state. Something I've seen, like I said, firsthand, unfortunately. I have to say, unfortunately, being the predominant word there. Mm -hmm. And religion is another case. We have people who, in their pursuit of morality, have decided that everything from Pepsi-Cola to dancing is immoral. And this is largely a case of trying to find things that they don't do that might possibly be a problem, and then deciding that they're immoral so that they can say, I don't do that, therefore I am more moral. So in taking this to where you said something becomes like harmful to oneself, would that be the case of some of these people who become obsessed with, say, the beauty factor, getting obsessed with plastic surgery to the point that they're actually doing physical harm to themselves? That's an excellent Surgical example. Surgical addiction and such? Mm-hmm. Okay. The Bride of Wildenstein is an excellent example of that if you care to look her up on the internet. Being a more daring daredevil is another really obvious example. Being more deserving of sympathy is another really good one. People become serious hypochondriacs because of that, for instance. And psychologically, that would tie into something like, say, Munchausen syndrome. Sure. Which, for those people who don't know, is where you start to create elaborate stories to gain sympathy or gain attention and that sort of thing. Susan Smith and, you know, the supposed kidnapping of her children just to gain the notoriety and attention. Right. And then, of course, going back to almost the entire beginning of the segment, there's Keeping Up with the Joneses, where you're purchasing a lot of almost completely worthless stuff. Not because you have any use for it, but because they have it, therefore I need one. Which is a tremendously big issue in today's society with debt and such. Oh, absolutely. It's a damaging drain on one's resources and often leads people to bankruptcy. Right. Very true. Well, it's been a fascinating topic, and I know this gets much, much deeper in, which I'm sure we'll follow up on uh, future segments here. Thank you for your time, Rob. I really appreciate it and hope everybody else is eager to hear the follow-up as I am. Thank you, Jim. Rational Ignorance It sounds like an oxymoron, but sometimes it makes more sense to not learn something. The truth is that information takes time to collect. In a world where time is money, sometimes information takes more time to collect than it's worth. This is most obvious when making purchasing decisions. 
When buying a car or house, the difference between an informed decision and a blind guess can cost us not just in the value of our purchase, but in repair fees over time. When purchasing a candy bar, on the other hand, anything beyond the most cursory glance at the wrapper would most likely be an expenditure that exceeds the total value of the product. Vendors and marketers understand this phenomenon and take advantage of it. By proliferating the features of their product, they can increase the amount of research it takes to differentiate between a quality product and a lesser one. When research time exceeds the difference in value, the customer is better off flipping a coin and taking their chances. This also works for other decision-making processes. Politics always provides such good examples. It's in the interest of a substandard public servant to increase the research time required to make an informed decision. Politicians have come up with many creative ways to achieve this. Attacking an opponent's personal habits is a recognized tactic. But more interesting is their ability to discover new things about people that horrify their constituency. American politics is particularly skillful at this. Over time, our political mindscape has become so crowded with our horrification at others' personal habits that we are in danger of entirely forgetting about more boring issues like education, environment, and human rights. This also has the effect of crowding out third parties. Every additional option increases the amount of time it takes to identify the most valuable choice. In a country where more than 70% of the population has already given up and entrusted their decision-making to the very politicians that they should be examining, a third-party candidate rarely has a chance. This problem is exacerbated by mental calcification. As people age, they get tired of doing the same research over and over. Their threshold for too much effort drops until they almost never consider the difference, no matter how dire. Under these conditions, it becomes inevitable that we slowly let slide the rational portion of rational ignorance. Hi there, and welcome back. Today we're talking to David Sinclair again in Finland. Hi, Dave. Hi. And today he's going to tell us about panic disorders. Panic disorders, they're kind of a distance off from alcoholism. How did you get into that? It is quite a different type of topic. I think the biggest difference, I want to emphasize this, is how far along we are in it. Uh, what I talked to you about before using opiate antagonists for treating alcoholism and other things is very well developed. Since we last talked, there's been another clinical trial published, another one that just came out showing works with adolescents. It's like 55 clinical trials. But what we're going to talk about today with panic disorders is at the cutting edge. There's been only one clinical trial so far. It makes a nice story. It makes a lot of sense. But of course, you have to be a bit more skeptical as to whether it is true. 
As far as the topic itself, both alcoholism and panic disorders are products of what is happening in the brain. And in both cases, if you understand the particular mechanisms that are causing it, uh, then coming up with a treatment is relatively simple. Okay, so we're talking about treating panic disorders. Let's uh, take a step back from that. What causes panic disorders? That has been the big problem that people haven't understood it before, and therefore they couldn't come up with a good treatment. The key to it comes about from a suggestion by a fellow by the name of Klein about 1993, and he suggested that panic attacks are similar to the suffocation alarm response. You start suffocating and you really start thrashing about. Uh, he said that this is the same as panic attacks. Well, that makes sense. People who I know who have panic disorders do it like when they're in a car and they roll down the windows because mm -hmm. they feel like they're suffocating. And it has been shown that you can get them just by increasing the carbon dioxide. For one thing, just the intensity. When you are suffocating, there is probably nothing stronger in your entire response system than your desire to start breathing again. This is what I'm told it's like with people with panic attacks. It's hard to imagine something that intense, stronger than trying to get food or trying to get sex or almost anything else. Also, the symptoms like shortness of breath, the chest pains, heart palpitations, all of these are similar. That seemed to make a lot of sense. There also was the fact that he said that some people are particularly sensitive, women of childbearing age, to the level of carbon dioxide. And so when the carbon dioxide in the blood got raised too high, then they started feeling a panic attack in that particular situation. Sure enough, when they check, people who are diagnosed as having panic disorders have a lower level of carbon dioxide normally in their blood, like they start breathing at a lower level of carbon dioxide. They are more sensitive. They react more to it. All of this was fine, but a year after he proposed it, a guy by the name of Lay shot him down. And he pointed out that there are lots of things that increase the carbon dioxide in your blood. For the people who've been watching the Olympics, when those people are done with the 10,000 meter skiing, they have a great deal of carbon dioxide in their blood, but they are not showing any panicking. There are other chemicals that cause it that don't cause panicking. And so Klein was wrong about the carbon dioxide in the blood directly causing uh, the panic attack. But on the other hand, he was right that it is really a suffocation alarm response. The key is that suffocation itself is not caused by a high level of carbon dioxide. Okay, but I thought that it was well established that carbon dioxide in the blood were what caused hyperventilation. Isn't that accurate? It is true that breathing is controlled by the level of carbon dioxide. High levels of carbon dioxide cause you to start breathing. This is the primitive response of the carbon dioxide receptors. But suffocation is different. What causes suffocation then? It is a higher perception. Let me give you an example of another type of fear. If you're walking through the forest and suddenly start running away, you're not doing it because of a primitive response of seeing a bunch of brown. Instead, it's a higher perception <laughs> of identifying a bear that's out there in the forest that's chasing. And that takes a lot of ah. mental processing. And in this case, it is produced by a thing we call stereocapnesthesia. Stereocapnesthesia. Now, that's a good eight-syllable word. What does it mean? Okay, you're familiar with many other stereo things, like stereoscopic vision. Sure. You have two eyes. And, and, Why do and you have two eyes? Old, and good old-fashioned stereo audio. 
Right. And the reason why you have two of the sense organs in both cases is to identify the location of the source. Brain takes the input from one eye and compares it with the input from the other eye. And the small differences between the two are able to tell it where in space the object is located. So you're telling me we have parallax breathing? (laughs) Well, more detail than that. This is a perception inside of the bloodstream itself. We have two different sets of receptors for carbon dioxide. Both of them are in the bloodstream. One of them is right next to the lungs in the aorta, right after the blood has mixed with the outside air. The other one is in the medulla, way back in the core of the body. In the same way, the body is able to take the difference between these two, compare the inputs, and determine what is causing an increase in carbon dioxide. Now, there are two different ways that carbon dioxide can go up in the blood. One of them is if you are exercising, like the skiing I was just talking about, or running a marathon. Then you produce more carbon dioxide. The other thing is if you're not able to excrete it, not able to get rid of it. If you start holding your breath, or if you happen to be in a place where the carbon dioxide level in the air that you're breathing is very high. If you think about it a minute, if the level were as high in the air as it is in your lungs, you wouldn't get rid of any carbon dioxide each time you take a breath. The body is able to compare the two and come up with an analysis saying, where is the carbon dioxide increase coming from? Well, that makes sense. This is a good theory. Like you say, it makes a good story. But what evidence have you seen that this actually happens? The evidence comes about because of the responses we make to these two situations. Imagine, again, the skiers. When they come in at the end or end of the marathon, first thing they do is to lower their head, lower their body, may even lie down, and they're relatively happy. They're quite content staying in the same place, but you usually can see a smile on their face even if they lost the race. Now, they are breathing very heavily. They have hyperventilation. That is the response that you get if the high carbon dioxide came from increased production. On the other hand, we know from experiments that if the increase in carbon dioxide came from bad air, inability to breathe, that the first symptom is to raise the head and then to stand up and then to start moving around and trying to escape from the place and feeling absolutely horrible, but still breathing very heavily. Just backtracking a little bit on this, I was talking to a Dutch fellow and he was asking me if I'd ever had a panic attack. And I said, well, I didn't think so. He had had some. And then I started talking about when I was out on the west coast of America and scuba diving. I'd learned to scuba dive in the Midwest, where the deepest water was about 25 feet deep. Got out in the Pacific Ocean, and the scuba club said, Okay, in order to become a member of the Whitewater Divers, you have to make a free ascent from 60 feet. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So I went down the 60 feet with the guy who was there. You have to take out the mouthpiece that you breathe from, and then you have to go up slowly. You cannot pass the slowest bubble. You know, it's amazing how slow bubbles can be when you're trying to get up. And I got within maybe 15 feet of the surface and I couldn't take it. I started thrashing out all over the place and kicking and coming and made it up out of the water. The mask was full of blood from something or other. This was a suffocation alarm response and I think identical to a panic attack. There is one other thing I should mention in here that we're pretty sure is happening. I don't have good evidence for it, but it happens with all other sense organs. And that is basing the perception upon expectations of what's going to come up. Uh, For example, your eye is continually moving around from one spot to another. 
when you move your eye, the brain makes a prediction of what is going to be coming on the retina from the new position. And as long as that's what sure. it gets, then you don't see anything being different. So the same thing is happening here, I'm pretty sure, that when you've had experience reading a breath of a given size and will produce a reduction in the aorta carbon dioxide of a given amount. When you are mm -hmm. hyperventilating, you are actually testing to see how bad the air is out and the hyperventilation can confirm if you are in a place that has high carbon dioxide. Okay, that makes sense. I'm really curious about this. Why do we pay attention to the amount of carbon dioxide in the blood? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to check the amount of oxygen in the blood instead because that's really what we use isn't it yeah it does make sense and like many other things that have developed in evolution nobody's quite sure but there is a story that is developing this is not so much mine but i think it's a fascinating story if you go all the way back to fishes they have a very good system for sensing oxygen in the water now, this is important for instance here in the baltic sea down deep there is a area with no oxygen it's like a black hole and if a fish happens to swim into this they drown so they have a very well-developed panic attack if they go into a place that it has low oxygen and this is found in practically all fishes however at about the time when plants started moving up on the land and then losing their leaves something else developed the leaves would fall into the shallow waters and when they're rotting there they cause the shallow water come low in oxygen. Normally, if you're in a pristine sure. alpine a lake, the shallow water is lots of oxygen. When there's a lot of stuff rotting in it, then it loses the oxygen. Most fishes would stay away from this, but some of them, my favorite is the dogfish, a very primitive fish, and it had developed sort of a scuba gear, another way of getting oxygen. It would go up to the surface and jump out a little bit and take a gulp of air and push it down into a swim bladder and get the oxygen from there. And then there were lungfishes that came out from this. And they were able to use this shallow area with low oxygen. It didn't matter. But they, of course, had to overcome their aversion to low oxygen. They got rid of the system with the low oxygen. And now you may ask, why do we care about what a dogfish does? Well, the fact is, that's where we came from. That yeah, it's all part first, of the evolutionary process. Exactly. The first tetrapods didn't use their front legs for walking another million years before they're able to walk on the land. Instead, the front legs were good for doing push-ups, for sticking their heads out of the water to take gulps of air. So Fish doing push-ups is a very funny picture. <laughs> I, I can just see them. Actually, some beautiful pictures in Scientific American on the article where they were presenting uh, much of this. Uh, we're evolved from creatures that had lost the fear of low oxygen. Now, these fishes still needed something to tell them when to gulp the air, and so this was regulated by carbon dioxide. Early in the evolution on land, the creatures didn't breathe like us, but they still took meals of air. So they sit around and don't breathe, and suddenly, oh, carbon dioxide is up, I'll take a breath, and then they take some. But not if there is a lot of carbon dioxide in the area where they're living. They had receptors uh -huh. in their nostrils that stopped them from doing that. That's one way to do it. We have sort of the same thing if we're in the water. We don't breathe. We have receptors that stop 
stop us from breathing. But then this stereocapnesthesia system developed, which is more accurate for predicting how bad the outside air is. I wanted to mention one other thing on evolution also. I mentioned earlier that uh, women of childbearing age were the ones who are most sensitive to carbon dioxide levels. I think this makes sense also in evolution. If you imagine back in caveman days, the men sitting up in front of the cave by the fire, if our oxygen level went down and we start having a few brain cells dying off as a result, it really didn't matter too much for evolution if us men lost a few brain cells. <laughs> right. Women back in the middle of the cave, if they have fetus, it is very sensitive to reduced oxygen and it is very important for evolution that the woman is able to sense when the carbon dioxide goes up to stand up. Remember, raising the head was one of the first responses you see. Carbon dioxide is heavier than air and in still locations, it will be down close to the bottom. So you stand up, you start moving around, and you panic, and you get out of that cave. So I, I think it makes sense that uh, it should be primarily in women of childbearing age. Okay. Now we've got a fairly sound theory that it's triggered by carbon dioxide. In our technological world, that means buses, elevators, airplanes, whatever. So what can we do about it? Well, it's simple. All you need to do, theoretically, in order to prevent a panic attack is to breathe through a scrubber that takes away the carbon dioxide in the air that you breathe. So this is like scrubbers in space shuttles and submarines? Exactly. They have them in these things and also in some rebreathers. What I didn't know about before getting into this was in anesthesia. When they are giving you an anesthetic, stuff is too expensive to just throw it away, so they collect what they give you, take away the carbon dioxide with the scrubber, and give it back to you to breathe again. So they've no. well developed technology for doing this. As a matter of fact, one of the members of our team here in Finland is an anesthesiologist, and I was explaining to him about how panic attacks are triggered by increased carbon dioxide. He listened to my presentation and he said, come with me. He led me down the hall, opened up a big doorway where there were two patients who were being prepared for having an operation. And there was the monitor showing how much carbon dioxide they were getting in the air that they were breathing. And he said, we run into this all the time. Last week, something went wrong and one of the ladies got too much carbon dioxide and she woke up in the middle of it with a panic attack. It's something we have to avoid. So wow. he, I mean, it's something that anesthesiologists know that high carbon dioxide can cause a panic attack. Oh, interesting. Nice that it's finally getting transferred over to non-anesthesiology work. <laughs> Panic attacks tend to happen in buses, elevators, and cars. Can you actually make a scrubber small enough to use under those circumstances? Sure. I have one here right now. Uh, got it from Dr. Stephen Cox. He's at the University of Kentucky School of Medicine. He's also president of the National Anxiety Foundation. And he came up with the same basic idea that I did, but he went further. He went ahead and made some of the handheld scrubbers and started trying them out, testing them on patients. Okay, testing is a good thing. Did they work? They worked fantastically well. Now, it was only a very small, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. Uh, they had five panic disorder patients, and they were given a scrubber that actually took out the carbon dioxide. Uh, another four patients got things that looked like the scrubbers that you breathe through, but didn't take out any carbon dioxide. And they took them home, and if they were uh, feeling like they were going to be having a panic attack, then they would use the scrubber that they had. They rated how effective it was. Now, every single 
one of the patients with a real scrubber got better. And the, the average efficacy was 85%. I mean, none of the placebo patients got better. They had a 3% efficacy. With only nine subjects, they got a significance of 0.00006. Sorry, I'm a statistician. This is phenomenal to get this type of thing. <laughs> it's a chance of one in 10,000. Yeah, no kidding. I've been looking at some of the studies from the alcoholism, and with like 200 patients, they're quite happy to get significance of like a thousandth of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that round from the one. study in which they were just published looking at Namafen for compulsive gambling. And it's, it's a beautiful study, but it is nothing in comparison to this power they're coming up. You might wonder, why is it that this should be so much more effective? Let me give you an analogy. Imagine you're a doctor and you have a patient with the following symptoms. She's thrashing her arms around. She's kicking her legs as hard as she can go. She's raising her head up and she's turning blue. So what's wrong with her and what's the treatment? Sounds like asphyxiation to me. (laughs) Well, she's drowning. So you pull her out of the water. And it's 100% effective, right? Yeah. Yeah, because you're dealing with a very basic system that the person is drowning in water, and you're able to take care of it. Well, in effect, our panic disorder patients are drowning in the carbon dioxide, and so we're pulling them out of it by using the scrubber. So if it's that clear-cut, why isn't it 100% effective? That's a good question. There is another component to panic disorders, and that is learning. Uh, The first time that you get on to a bus here in Finland, for instance, and uh, the carbon dioxide gets too high and you start feeling a panicky feeling, and then you escape getting off of it, there is a learning that occurs. Your nervous system will associate the stimuli with the bus with the feelings of panic. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, we've done it with rats and the animals very well learn uh, to avoid places with high carbon dioxide, and in the future, they will stay away from it. And it's the same thing. People start avoiding the buses, and they also start getting the same type of feelings from buses or whatever it is, the stimuli. Now, when we get rid of the carbon dioxide uh, increases, we get rid of that stimulus, but there still is the panic which is being triggered by all of the learned stimuli. We hope to do a trial in which we can take care of this also. Uh, I think there's a technique called flooding. Uh, Actually, it's another form of extinction uh, in which you get rid of phobias like fear of spiders by enduring it. Uh, They've tried this Hmm. with panic disorders. Uh, A little bit of luck, but the trouble is people are willing to sit there with spiders crawling all over them with the flooding technique, but the panic disorder suffocation feelings are so strong that people won't take quite often. But Uh. if we got rid of the carbon dioxide, maybe they could take the feelings that are associated with the bus. Uh, We need to do a trial on it. So do you actually have trials planned for this? Yes. Uh, We already have a team here with the National Public Health Institute. Dr. Cox in Kentucky is helping us out on it. And we want to replicate with more subjects what he has done. Like help him get FDA approval if we can get the same results. And from our point of view, I think this would be marvelous. If it really does work, I want to get it here in Finland as soon as possible. And the way to do that is to have a trial that gets good results with it here. I bet. Uh, and we also have another trial. If that one works, we have another one planned. And this is to use the same scrubber system as a way of preventing even the first panic attack. A person who has gone through 
having an attack. It's a horrible experience, and they can be scarred for life just from having done it. It would be much nicer if we could prevent even the first one. We want to try to develop ways of identifying people at high risk. For instance, the women of childbearing age, people who have a genetic background, relatives who have shown panic attacks, and perhaps also people who are continually complaining about stuffy air. They're the ones who open the window at the party, even with no cigarette smoke. If we could take these people and give them a scrubber and tell them whenever you're in a place where you feel a bit panicky or stuffy air, just breathe through the scrubber. And theoretically, we shouldn't be able to prevent even the first panic attack and the person will never have to go through the horror. So are you envisioning people who just might possibly have a panic attack carrying around inhalers, or do you see, like in buses and cars and elevators, these little windows in case of panic attack break glass? (laughs) I like that. I think there's a good chance that people will be quite happy to carry them around with. Of course, we have to see in the clinical trials, but in Dr. Cox's trial, uh, the patients like having the scrubbers. Uh, In fact, uh, they were supposed to give them back, and the patients wanted to keep them. Uh, I was very lucky to get one prototype to bring back to Finland. I could actually see handing these out to pregnant women. Well, this is one of the points that he's made, that the other methods that are used with medicines for treating panic disorders are not allowed for pregnant women or should not be used. So this is a way that is safe for use with pregnant women. As a little bit sort of anecdotal evidence that people would use them, I went over to Kentucky to see Dr. Cox and did give me this prototype. On the way back, I was going through the subway in Atlanta as packed people and sitting there in the back corner seat of the subway. And I thought, well, why not? And so I took out the scrubber and took a few breaths from it. And, you know, it was like being in a car, a stuffy car, and you step out of it and get that first breath of fresh air. And it sure. it's very nice. Aside from my scuba example, I haven't had panic attacks but it was a reinforcing, enjoyable thing in itself. I think that people probably would be quite willing to use these, but we'll have to see. That's all really interesting. I hope that we have some developments on this sometime soon, and I'll keep an eye on it. We were fortunate on this that uh, it happened after I had developed this part and talked with Stephen Cox and had everything going. I was told that a family had just donated a million dollars to Helsinki University for support of research on developing a new treatment for panic disorders. In pure coincidence, I did not know this at the time we started developing. So we have been in touch with this committee and I hope that we can get the support for the clinical trial so that we can go ahead and see if it does work on our own. Sweet. Beautiful. I'd appreciate it if you actually sent me a copy of that when it's all said and done. Sure. Thank you, David. This has been a very educational interview, and I will be talking to you soon. Hello. Welcome to Chatter. If you don't want to hear Chatter, then go away. (laughs) Hey, this is Rob. And this is Tiffany. And that was another episode and uh, Oh my god, that was a painful one to get out. No kidding. I officially am going to lay off of Skype, like forever. And I'm not going to do any more long distance interviews until such time as I can find a better tool because that sucker took me like an extra five hours to edit. Five days? Well, <laughs> an hour a day, yeah. My part was done weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. easy non-Skype part. <laughs> 
Actually, that's not the only reason we were delayed so much this time. We are working on three shows simultaneously. That's right. So even though this one is horribly late, the next one is going to be like something resembling on time around the end of this month. Right. So we have a brain update. Can I sing the brain song in the background? No. We don't have a brain song. No. I I can sing Pinky and the Brains. No. Please, somebody send us a brain song that's pod safe so he stops threatening. We sent a bunch of brains to exciting places. We sent one to Jan in Poland. And we sent another brain to Rick. This was Rick's second brain because the dog ate his first brain. I am so sure. The dog ate my brain. Yeah. We also sent one to Rick in Ontario, Canada. And in Spirology in the UK, we sent one to Frank in Virginia. And one to South Africa, to Yay, Brian. Yay, new continent. Yay, new continent. We also sent one to Brooks in Montreal in Quebec, and one to Richard again in Great Britain, and then one to John in Michigan. All those people up north evening out all the ones down in the south that That's we had That's right. Sent. We're finally getting more northerners. A lot of these people earned brains for sending us really great show ideas. In other news, in my zeal to continue updating and improving our website, I added a voting page. Now, this isn't a vote for us on all the podcasting sites because quite honestly word of mouth is doing fine for us and we're not going to do a lot of verbal vote pipping mind you we appreciate the votes we do appreciate we the notice votes. them that's as far as we're concerned another form of word of mouth but what we really need to know is what have we done that you like right and even what have we done that you don't like that too that's, this, ju- that's actually even more important right this definitely does help drive our programming if there are things that you like if we hear from you either on the forum or an email or now more importantly in the voting page then that'll determine what we do next time and now we have a voting page which you can get to from a link on the top of our home page that lists all of the episodes and all of the segments in the episodes so you can identify not just what your favorite episode is but what your favorite pieces were too our forums kind of went nuts this month we got all sorts of really good suggestions for segments on the forums and an email among them marty suggested that we do something on origami and architecture and in and space exploration and fun stuff like that, which was incredibly convenient because I wound up talking to Marcus Robinson of a company called Icasa Village that is building basically origami houses. If you want to see what I'm talking about, go to www.thepod.net. And he's going to be doing an interview for us sometime in August. Local, he, right, not long when, distance. When he passes through, no Skype, Skype, no bad. Skype. We hate Skype. We also had some other suggestions. Inspirology, who is out on the forum, suggested Geek Careers and I love this topic, so we'll definitely be doing something with that. Absolutely. Frank, via email, also suggested that, hey, you guys need to get past that first date and appeal (laughs) to some of us who are in established relationships. And he's right. And really, that was always my plan. It wasn't supposed to take this long to get there, but then... There was just so much detail. (laughs) Geek dating was going to take three episodes total. Yeah, (laughs) That was birth to death. Besides that, I know too many geeks who have a hard time getting past the first date in the first place, so that was a good place to start. True, but we also know a lot of married geeks, so, you know, originally I was working through this in chronological order, and I've now rethought this, so episode after next should probably have geek dating for those of us who are in established relationships, how to spice
spice it up, keep the romance going, all that kind of thing. And how to deal effectively with the little problems that crop up. Right. So, coming soon, Frank, and I'm sorry. All of you who have been out there so patiently waiting for us to get past the first date, I'm finally getting there. And then I'll have to back up and do some more flirting and all that. Um, The other one that we have is Rick, who via email suggested workaholicism. And we love that topic. And in true form, he gave us a work address to send the brain to. And he also said that he's far too busy to help. But then he did manage to make time and send us some very interesting links. So, Rick. Which is good. Yeah. Rick, shout out to you. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. And that's it. We're going to cut it short this time. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Undercurrent by Jamie Sieber, an artist you can hear on Magnatune.com. The music for the interlude is Silver Cinema by Neon McCaw. The music for the second segment is After the Speechless Head by My Beloved. The music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you, boots first, then corset. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Ankh Infinity production.